You know who's a grinder? He he works for Fox and the Athletic and Foul Territory and Fair Territory. Can we run the promo first? Boom, there it is. Every Monday, this one's came out um, a few days ago, but it's still really good. So if you want to listen to it right now on Apple, Spotify, if you're listening or watch it on YouTube, it's there for you. Ken Rosenthal joining us right now. Hopefully got a, a ounce of sleep back home. Yes. Hey, I'm an honored here to be in the presence of the subject of a book. I can see it's right there. Looking good, Eric. Congrats, man. It's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. You, you're a big help with this whole thing. You, you helped us, you know, get the, you know, connect us to people with the athletic and they've been putting the excerpt out. Like I have no idea, like writing a book. I am so impressed. One of my fa- one of my players asked me who on who on foul territory could win in a spelling contest, and I didn't know he meant like you too. And he goes, "Why is it such a tough answer?" He's like, "Of course it's Ken. That guy doesn't seem like he ever spells anything wrong." Uh, no, I wouldn't go that far, but, but I will say this: um, for people out there who might be curious about the book, Eric partnered with one of the great baseball writers of our generation i guess you put it that way tim brown he's outstanding he can write like few others and i mean that sincerely so i am looking forward to reading this once we get through maybe the playoffs when i have a little time but i will read it yes playoffs playoffs are you kidding me if i don't if i don't hear shohei otani is traded out of your mouth first and you haven't read my book then I think you're slapping Ken. And I would never say that because I completely agree with what you said, Tim. And you see superstars in different industries. Like in baseball, we see superstars all the time. They stand out above even all-stars. Ken and Tim are two guys that I've had a lot of interaction with, probably more interaction with than anybody else. And their preparation and the way they go about writing an article is completely different than everybody else. So yes, I agree with you, Tim is a superstar you are also in that realm too ken so. well thanks eric i'm sure people don't want to hear us you know just congratulating each other so let's get down <laughs> to it yeah let's get to business i will second though tim brown's awesome so check out the book we'll talk more about it later okay ken let's start with you hustling on a wednesday when everyone else is traveling and doing whatever else and really representing the people here who are like okay oakland says they talk to the league the league says nothing from Oakland. You cleared everything up, so let's first get your synopsis of where we stand with Oakland versus Commissioner Manfred. Well, what the story I wrote yesterday really was about was the city of Oakland wanting to establish with the commissioner through that meeting the mayor had with Commissioner Rob Manfred that they did make an offer, that there was a very, as they put it, specific proposal presented to the A's, and they felt and they feel today that it was a good proposal. Baseball, if you remember, as represented by the commissioner, his comment initially was there was no offer, there's nothing on the table, et cetera. That is what the city of Oakland, as represented by the mayor in that meeting, wanted to disprove. It seems to me they did a pretty effective job disproving that. There was definitely a proposal there. Baseball's next question would be, okay, can you execute this? And they do have some questions along those lines, but Remember, the A's were asking for a $12 billion developmental project around the ballpark in Oakland, a development project that would actually just include a ballpark. In Las Vegas, all they're getting is a ballpark. So what the ask was, was a whole lot different. 
in Oakland than it was in Las Vegas. And the other part of it, too, is it seems to me, after talking with the mayor and other people involved in that effort, it's a sincere effort. It was a sincere effort. And they had, I wouldn't say moved mountains, but they had certainly accomplished a lot in their quest to get a deal done. Was it all the way there? Maybe not. Was it there to baseball's satisfaction? Maybe not. But that's why you negotiate. In my mind, after researching this article and writing it, it seems to me if Major League Baseball really wanted to be in Oakland, if the A's really wanted to be in Oakland, they could have found a way. Now, baseball and the A's might dispute that. They might say, we've been trying for 10 plus years. But if you look at all the documents that are attached to what we wrote, and we printed all of them, the ones that were presented to the commissioner, certainly there were there had been progress made. And certainly there was something on the table. And if they really wanted to, they could have gone from there. So you wrote in your article that the mayor was elected January 9th. Is that correct? Yes. Inaugurated. Yeah. She was elected in November, yeah. brought into okay. office in January. Is there any is there any inclination that the A's approached her after after being elected or after be even maybe even during the campaign, not saying anything nefarious, just like, hey, now that you're in, we'd really love to get this because this didn't work out with the previous mayor who I think had been in office since 15, I think you said in your article. Correct. Yes. They had talked and there were negotiations going on. And in fact, when Commissioner Manfred told me that he thought the mayor's intentions were good, but she was kind of late to the process, obviously just getting there in January, and the bad seeds had been sown, so to speak. And that's true. And at the same time, if it really was over, I think the expression he used was it was kind of over before she got there. Well, then why do you negotiate still? They were still negotiating. So yes, there was communication, Eric. There were still negotiations. And one of the points that the mayor made to me was They've gotten two additional grants since, I guess, the initial proposal was made in April. So more money was coming in. They, her quote was, the offer is getting better all the time. So again, these things often disintegrate into semantics. He said, she said, and it's difficult to know exactly where both parties are. But once more, the impression I took away was that if there was a desire on the A's part and baseball's part to get a deal done in Oakland, they certainly could have gone forward in a more meaningful way than they ultimately did. And beyond that, the negotiations were to the point, Eric, where when the deal with Vegas was announced or the binding agreement, whenever that was in April, I believe, mm -hmm. Oakland was blindsided. They felt they were close, really close to a deal. Ken, so, so we've got Rob saying a bunch of things that aren't true surprise surprise <laughs> like, what, what's the point right like what's the like is he trying to save face is he trying to make oakland look bad like what like what is the point of not just saying hey we got this deal from oakland is it because like you said earlier do they not want or they are they just they just don't want a team in oakland or 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 what's going on i'm not sure and you're asking me to read his mind, and I'm not very good at doing that, not just with him, but with anybody. I still don't understand why he said what he did about there being no offer. Now, if you want to say, well, it wasn't a technical term sheet, okay. But I think we published 
over 200 pages of documents on what was being discussed and what was planned and all of that. So clearly there was a lot going on, a lot going on. I don't know why he took the tack he did. I don't know why he insulted the people of Oakland that day, the fans, when he kind of mockingly referred to the reverse boycott as an average night in Major League Baseball in terms of attendance. I don't know why you would say that. In fact, you could make the argument from afar Baseball already has won in their minds. They want to go to Vegas. They got a deal on Vegas. Just go graciously. That's not what happened. Uh, I will say in these particular comments he made to me the other day, there was none of that. There was none kicking the dog or anything like that. He just said, we had an open, good conversation, but it's just not there in his opinion. And okay. And they, in fairness, baseball has reason to be skeptical of Oakland because of all the failures before, but this was a new mayor with a very passionate feeling for this. I think that came through in the two articles we ran. We ran the news story and the Q&A. And she clearly is a fighter and she clearly wants this done. Now, is it too late? Probably it's too late. But as she said, until there's a shovel in the ground in Vegas, she's going to keep at it. Wait, why? I guess you just said it's too late. Like I feel like there's still a chance, but maybe I'm being maybe I'm being too positive. But I think why would the owners? Because she printed out 31 copies, one for him and one for each owner. I think Fisher's probably gonna burn his. But <laughs> Fisher's so, not real. He's not real. He's he's, he's an AI. He's a sim. <laughs> okay. Why would why would the commission or whatever that that the relocation commission that I think's headed up by Antonasio, why would they not tell him, hey? John, like you need to like you need to at least look into this. We don't want you in a smaller market. We want to stay in a diverse market. Why would they not at least look at this and tell him, "Hey, like let's pump the brakes a little bit." Eric, excellent question. And I don't know this for certain. Actually, I do know this for certain because the mayor we quoted her to this effect. She wants the owners to see what they had. That's why she made the show of giving him the copies of these documents. She wants them to be aware of just what happened. And if I'm a large market owner, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I have serious questions here. This is a team that's going to go right back on revenue sharing when they get this deal. They might have gotten right back on revenue sharing in Oakland as well. But maybe in a new ballpark in Oakland, if it succeeded in the way that the Giants succeeded with their new ballpark some years ago and to this day, then perhaps they would be off revenue sharing. So if I'm a large market owner, I'm asking some serious questions. Actually, if I'm any owner, I'm asking John Fisher, why is this so much better than what you could have had? Tell me, why didn't you just go for a ballpark in Oakland and make a much easier deal than reach for this deal in Vegas where you're only getting a ballpark? These are all fair questions, and I don't know if this is going to be railroaded through or not. It's difficult for me to know or say, but if I'm an owner, especially a large market owner, but any owner, I'm asking hard questions. Do you get a chance to have a quick follow-up? Like, do you have a call into Manfred's office? I don't know how like requests for, you know, questioning happens like for a rebuttal. Have we had any kind of rebuttal? I know this just came out. Uh, I think they had their meeting Sunday. Is that when they met together? Yes. They met Sunday. Um, I talked to the commissioner before the all-star game and I don't know that he needs to say or would say anything more than he said to me then. I told him what the mayor had said and where her position was, and he responded in kind. So 
The next question really is what happens with the relocation committee? Do they get this thing going forward? And actually the first question before that is, do the A's get their act together? As Manfred said in his press conference with the Baseball Writers Association of America a couple of days ago, right the morning of the All-Star game, they have not submitted their full relocation proposal. And on top of not fully submitting it, they have not seemingly submitted the part about where they're going to play from 2025 to 27. So is their act fully together? Based on past history, a good guess is no, because they've had, as our Tim Kawakami has written many times, numerous, numerous deals over the years that have fallen through. And this one's further down the line. There's no question about it. Do I think it will happen? Yes. But there are still some obstacles. There are still some political opposition in Las Vegas. This is not totally clean as far as just getting a deal from point A to point B. So that might be also why Oakland is again making public its desires and what it has done substantively to get this done. We'll see how it all plays out. You know how people love the show's succession? You heard about it? No? Oh. I don't think so. People my I don't have age, time for a show. People I'm my age show. love that show, okay? It's a great show. One like even, people my age, even people my age love that show. Well, we're the same age. But no, but people will love whatever this is going to be made into one day because it will be something. And this is ridiculous. Like, there'll be even, like, an episode where they're like, you forgot the relocation papers? <laughs> <laughs> he like gave it to like his cousins, friends, like something else, and he's supposed to do it. And it's like the second cousin. I'll tell you what, Scott. Do the papers. How about this? Just as a fantasy hypothetical, they get the team back in Oakland and they make Moneyball two. It wouldn't be the same as Moneyball one, of course. Moneyball one was an entirely different topic, but you know what I'm saying. Yes. There would be a lot of money for the Oakland A's if they got that new stadium built. It's beautiful. The renderings are beautiful. And it would be right on the water. Everything would be great. But seemingly that's not where baseball wants to be. Moneyball, too. How we got our ballpark in Oakland. It was a 12-year fiasco with us moving to Vegas, but not really, and forgetting papers. And Anyway, all right, let's get to the All-Star game because you were there, obviously. You're on the field covering it for Fox. Give me your takeaways. What stood out to you? What did you hear when you were there? Like any cool occurrences being on the field for that whole time? Yes. And to me, what stands out most about the All-Star game in this era now when it doesn't count anymore is just how much fun the players have participating and being there. And you really get a feel for it from my vantage point. That's the one game of the year where I'm in the dugout. I'm right at the end. Usually I'm in a camera pit, which is adjoining the dugout. I'm not in the dugout. The All-Star game, nobody really minds. It's not a big deal. But you get a sense of just how excited the players are to be there. And I'll give you one example. Orlando Arce at one point, I believe he grounded out, pretty routine out. And he's running down the first baseline in front of the American League dugout. And all the Latin guys on the bench in the American League dugout are just yelling at him and giving him grief. I, mean, I didn't know what they were saying. It was Spanish. And he's yelling back, and it's just that kind of fun thing that you see that you don't see in any other competition during the season. And the fact that we mic all the players at Fox and we get such interesting exchanges and conversations out of that, that's another thing that always stands out to me, or at least has the last couple of years when we've done it. And also, this game was actually a pretty good game. 
which isn't always the case, of course. And Diaz as the hero was really cool. 32-year-old, first-time All-Star for the Rockies. Not a lot of people knew who he was and what a moment he had. That's the one answer, too, when people say, well, why do we need a representative from every team? Well, it was kind of a cool moment. For Rockies fans, Ken, this is the moment of the year. Safe to say? Apex. Probably, yeah. And actually, even when Brent Rooker came up, this was very interesting. And there was a contingent of A's fans there, and they were screaming and chanting, sell the team. And that might be their moment. Outside of the reverse boycott, that might be their moment of the year. So that was pretty cool. Oh, and by the way, to the A's fans who tweeted at me saying, you guys did the Otani interview when we were doing that chant. You did it on purpose so people (laughs) wouldn't pay attention. Let me tell you something, okay? We interview Otani when Otani wants to be interviewed, not when any group of fans is starting a chat. Oh, so I just wanted to clear that up a little bit. So they, so they know, so they, so that they, so A's fans know Otani doesn't want to go to Oakland. He planned that interview for when you guys started. He, well, no, actually, the accusation, the accusation on social media was that Fox did this. Fox trying to cover up what was going on, and here's Ken, and he kept asking questions. Guys, I love believe conspiracy it. theories, but <laughs> no, this was not that. I believe that it. Great. It was Fox. Yeah, Otani, he doesn't want to go to Oakland. He wants to go to Vegas, I heard. That's what he, I mean, that's what he, that's what he told me, you know, so. Uh, Ken, I, 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 yeah, I got the scoop. I got the, I'm, I'm in, in tight with, with Otani. Um, <laughs> sure. I want to talk a little bit about the Home Run Derby. Uh, I know that, man, the Home Run Derby used to be one of my favorite events to watch um, back in the King Griffey Jr., Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire um, days. Now, I'm not the biggest fan. I I like the timing. I like the time, like the three-minute time. Now, it just seems like a rushed BP. And we're not getting to see guys really lean on balls and try to hit balls out of the stadium. It's tough to follow. It goes too fast. Guys are exhausted. Um, do you think? Do you think we we may end up changing? Are we are we sticking with this routine? Like, I just feel like there's a better way to to, to put on a better show for fans. First off, Brock, I'll be honest. I am not as involved with the Home Run Derby as a lot of people simply because it's ESPN's event, not Fox's, yeah. and I don't have to pay it much attention. I also don't cover it for our, our website. Jason Stark is one of the great Home Run Derby experts, the leading Home Run Derby expert, I would say, and he does a brilliant job. So that said, I am with you. I have always thought, and the rules have changed over the years. They've been adjusted. It's always quite confusing, and it's tough to say what's going on for some people. Now, that said, fans, younger fans especially, they love it. And they love it. It's actually, for a lot of fans, a better event than the game itself this year. I don't know that it was because the game was pretty good, but in many years, that's the case. So I would say that there are always adjustments that can be made for a competition like that, and maybe they should consider some. But it is an overwhelmingly popular thing, and it is a lot of fun. Even with all the concerns that you just expressed when Julio hit the 41 in that one round the other day, I mean, that was crazy. And Alonzo and what he's done in the past, it's, it's a fun event. It's just something that maybe can be tweaked a little bit. Do you think based on MLB's track record or not think, have you heard 
since the All-Star Game is still the highest rated All-Star event of all four major All-Star Games, that they're going to want to tweak anything with the All-Star Game? Or is it just going to be a standard MLB? Well, hey, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Wait till something else. Or do you hear some things coming down the pipeline that could be changed, like last year where they started miking guys up? Well, that kind of thing is different than the format of the game, right? That was an innovation. Fox drove it. Fox has wanted to do this kind of thing for a long time. And we got a collective bargaining agreement and things were more peaceful with the union and they got everyone to agree that it was a good thing. And everyone does agree it's a good thing. So those kinds of things, Eric, are kind of separate from the actual game itself and the format of the game. I don't know that it will change anytime soon, but keep in mind, at some point, once the Oakland and Tampa Bay situations resolve with regard to their ballparks, we're going to go to 32 teams. There is likely going to be radical realignment. And at that point, the leagues as we know them might not exist. That would be the point, in my opinion, when you change the format of the All-Star game. And Joel Sherman of the New York Post, who has been a guest on this show, of course, he had an interesting idea the other day, basically saying the way to get guys like Ellie De La Cruz in the game is to have an over-26 group of players as one team, under 26 as the other. That's one thing that would be cool. A lot of people have talked over the years about world all-stars versus American all-stars. I think that would be a lot of fun. Wouldn't take away from the WBC. Now, another thing you could do, and this has been discussed too at times, play the semifinals and the finals of the WBC all-star week and change everything around entirely. So there are a lot of ways they can go, but I don't expect any change in the format until we have that big realignment with expansion. I'll do one more um, fan questions coming in hot, and I know you'll get a lot more of this coming up over the next few weeks. So I, I just like the way that Justin in the chat kind of gave you a lot of options here. He's like, ask Ken, what are his thoughts on the trade deadline heating up? Justin said, I expect Hayter, Snell, Goldschmidt, Giolito, all to be made available. Maybe Soto Cease. Arenado too. So as you're gearing up for the trade deadline, and we're going to talk to Derek Gould in about 20 minutes from now or less, um, what are your thoughts, expectations, anything you're hearing or getting excited about? You know, for us, the reason we have Derek on today is Cardinals kind of came out and said, like, it's on, baby. We're going to be selling. First off, everyone is always available at all times. It's just a question of cost. Now, some players are more available than others because they cost less. And that's just the way it goes. I am sure that the Cardinals, for example, will entertain queries on Goldschmidt and Arenado. Doesn't mean they'll take them down the road, but I'm sure they'll get asked about them, and I'm sure they'll perhaps entertain, hey, tell me what you would do. And that's due diligence. That's what a general manager should do. As for the nature of the deadline, Kim Ang was quoted, I believe, on MLB Network Radio today as saying that she's never seen it like this. And what she meant was so few sellers, the AL Central and NL Central being so closely competitive, not in a good way necessarily, but the division races are close that there might not be a lot available. And we've been hearing a lot of this talk really from the start of the season. I don't buy it. I never buy that the deadline is going to be quiet. Why? Because I've been covering this thing a long time and we talk about this kind of scenario almost every year and all hell inevitably breaks loose. I expect all hell to break loose again. I don't know in what form. I don't know who's going to go, but I would expect 
that we'll get surprised. We always get surprised. I frequently write this time of year that the deadline has this way of spinning our heads around. And yeah, I would think that's going to happen. Now, I don't know the names because if I knew the names, there wouldn't be surprises. The Otani thing is something we will watch to the very end. If they stay in it or rally to get back in it, the Angels, then it becomes probably less of a possibility. But the reason I'm so intrigued by the next two or three weeks here is we have a number of teams that could go in a variety of directions. Mets, Padres, Cubs, Angels, those are just some of them. And I don't expect anything dramatic out of any of them. Probably the most likely scenario is they kind of play the way they have, right? But it's going to lead to some decisions. And we're going to see some things happen. We always do. And I'm sure there'll be a surprise, too. You bring me back August 2nd, and we will be talking about some kind of shocking turn of events. Hell yes. I cannot wait. That is our focus That's now. what I'm here for. Yes. That is what I'm here <laughs> for. I'm here for the Tau of the Backup Catcher and Trade Deadline Talks for the next two and a half weeks. Ken, awesome. Get some rest. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Uh, our, our next guest is ready on FT Live. Let's like float ourselves right over to trade conversations, please. Derek Gould from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch joins us right now. Oh, he's got a little Kratz hats for you. Oh, I love that. Put I want him on know, the spot. I want to know what it is. What's, is what's, that, what's that lid you got going on there, Derek? Oh, it's just a, an old 45 spacer, right? I thought I could pop on a hat after a long flight there. So uh, nice an uh, old what? retro cap. An old what? For, for an old record. I don't know if you guys, do you remember the spacers you'd have to put on the record so that they would play on a normal record machine? Oh, you mean like the small, like the small record so that you would, yeah. so it was in the center? Yep, yep, that's what that is. Oh, wow. Brock never played a record. But Never I don't even record. know who Jack Hanahan is. He's so damn young. Look at that baby. No, I'm, but I but I know who Ryan Hannigan is. Yeah, you're also, also you know. I see I see a lot of books behind you, but I'm wondering where the backup catcher is. Nah, hey, hey. Oh, let's go! Hey, hey yes, that that's a soft cover book. That means mm-hmm. Derek got the advanced copy. Ooh, wow! Signed, signed by Eric Kratz, the author. No, I didn't sign those. Those were, those are finger, just advanced copies. Yeah, we'll, we'll reunite at some point. Them. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, so let let's start at the top here, Derek. The St. Louis Cardinals have essentially said, "Season's over." Do you agree? <laughs> I mean, they're in the National League Central, so really, is a season ever over? Um, <laughs> you know, the. Uh, I mean, they're in they're they're in a bad spot. They they've had a tough first half schedule wise, and they've made it worse by having a tough first half pitching wise and everything else wise. Um, so their schedule does allow for them to maybe put something together, um, but not something they can rely on. So, yeah, they're not really clinging to the idea that they're going to make a race of this this season. If they do, then everything breaks right, and that's fine. But as the trade deadline approaches, they're certainly looking towards. How do they change the look of this team? What do they learn from 2023? How do they take some of the pieces that aren't going to be here in 2024 and move them for help in 2024? So it's kind of those streams are converging in the next few weeks where, you know, they don't want to run away from the 2023 season at the expense of the 2024 season. What they want to do is try to find a way right now to better position them for next year. What would surprise you most of a move that the Cardinals make? Whoa, uh, what would surprise me most? 
Um, gosh, I, I mean, you know, look, the, the likelihood of them moving one of their big, their big players, their guys that they're going to hitch the next couple of seasons to is not high. Um, I think, I think a trade of Jack Flaherty and what they would get in return. I think that, I don't know if it would surprise me as much as fascinate me or how they're able to do like Jordan Hicks, like a deal for Jordan Hicks. How can they maximize the interest in a reliever at this time of year? Plus, to be honest, I think like a major deal that answers their solution or answers some of their real big holes for the rotation, I think maybe that would surprise me. The Cardinals have not been a big splash team at the trade deadline either direction. They really haven't been a seller in a generation or longer at the trade deadline. But when you look at their moves, they've been more like to patch over or to acquire. Or a few years ago, they just kind of rolled the dice and, and got lucky and, and really got strong performances from like a John Lester, for example. Last year was uh, get Jordan Montgomery to help this year. So a surprise would be if they do one of their winter kind of major moves at this time of year. That would be, that'd be something that they really haven't pulled off since 11 when they made the deal that catapulted them towards the World Series, or 2009, when they made the deal for Matt Holliday. Do you feel like Moe's getting out in front of this and really saying this when no other GMs are saying this because he could possibly be on the block? Or is that just a pipe dream <laughs> for me that this guy just constantly has his own free get-out-of-jail card pass? Well, ownership, yeah, ownership. I think we talked about it last time I was on, Eric, that like ownership is really committed to him because of what he's done holistically for the organization. And while that definitely isn't showing up, in the standings or hasn't shown up for 10 years now with a pennant or hasn't shown up now 12 years with a World Series trophy. Um, they remain committed to him. Ownership does. They like what he's done throughout the whole organization and what he's built there. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, as far as trading him or quote unquote trading him, um, that's not really <laughs> what uh, he's not on the block per se. I think he's getting out ahead of it in part because the media is asking about it. But also, like, one of the things here is you can't hide from the obvious, right? Like, that's one thing about St. Louis and, and other markets, too. But baseball is so, you know, the fans just consume everything about baseball here, all the coverage about it. Um, the media recognizes that. The media helps feed it. And so one of the things is you can't hide from the obvious. The obvious is that the roster they built for 2023 is not working. It's not working as a contender. So what is he supposed to say? Give it more time? He tried that earlier. He said, give us patience. Well, patience didn't get them into contention by the break. So now he, he does need to get ahead of it because the obvious is there. They need change, and they have to find a way to use the assets that they have, the players that they have, and the future they want to have to come together at the trade deadline. I'll just throw some like random fan comments out there for you to react to if you want. Ethan said, Jordan Hicks to Texas, book it. number of Yankee fans have been saying they want – Brendan Donovan or Lars Newbar. So what do you think of some of those guys? Well, Lars is not likely to go anywhere at all unless the Cardinals are just overwhelmed. Um, you know, they got a lot of interest in him this winter. They, they really continue to get a lot of interest for a, a lot of reasons. I mean, everybody sees in the metrics and in the performance and the versatility and in the profile, let's be honest, um, in kind of his global profile. Um, everybody see the Cardinals see what everybody else sees and they are going to hold on to him. They, they like him, Edmund. These are guys that they want to continue to be a part of their team moving forward. 
Brendan Donovan's an interesting one. Nolan Gorman is an interesting one too, especially as you think about like what that second base or what left-handed bat um, could bring and, and how much the Cardinals need that. You know, one guy that wasn't mentioned there is Dylan Carlson. Last, last trade deadline, he was of interest to a lot of teams for because of his play. This trade deadline, he's going to get some interest from teams because of his potential and his versatility and maybe how they see him fit in his ballpark. Um, Hicks to Texas, that makes sense. Um, you know, the Cardinals trying to maximize what they can get for Hicks makes a lot of sense. They'll also have discussions about other relievers. Um, but I think, you know, it's a good place to start, which is where the Cardinals are starting by saying, look, we're not talking about Lars in this conversation. He's part of the future. He's part of that 2024 and beyond. And the Cardinals see exactly the potential and the production and the profile that every other team sees with him. Is there is there a history with the Cardinals in eating contracts in in trade type of scenarios as far as like, I, hey, you really want Lars Newbar? You have to eat Wilson Contreras' contract because I screwed up on this mm. one. Or is there is there scenarios for that that you could see from this team? And not saying that Wilson's is an albatross of a contract, but they essentially have five outfielders and they want him to play outfield also. So – is that something? No. Uh, so I, that's a great question. And it's one that if the Cardinals did, that was a gr- would be a big departure from their promises of what they, they intend to have as a payroll. Um, you know, if they're going to have a top three ticket sales total, you know, they, and the top, you know, say top 14 revenue, they've often talked about how they should have a top 10 payroll. They're going to be just outside of that this season, pending some additions here at the trade deadline. We'll see how that goes. Um, but they've been the team on the other side of that. They're willing to eat contracts. What they have done is they have made direct trades where they'll take on part of the salary. They did that with Mike Leak. They did that with Dexter Fowler. They did that eons ago with Tino Martinez. Um, you know, so if there's a team that say says, "Look, we have a place. We have a fit. We have an interest, maybe, in having Stephen Matz," then the Cardinals would look at that not so much as as kind of a roster clarity move. Um, and if they have to add some money to increase the prospect they would get in return, that would be more of the financial kind of trade that they would make, not one where they would latch on a contract. They, they, they feel like they're in position. They still do have some payroll room. They're not going to like divest of spending. That's not their goal. Derek, with it being all-star, all-star game, we just watched the all-star game. Cardinals had Nolan Arenado there. Obviously, mm-hmm. he goes every year. Um, how painful was it for Cardinals fans to watch as Zach Gallen got the start? Randy Arozarena was out there making plays, stealing bases. Adoli Garcia, a lot of lot of ex Cardinals um, playing yeah. for for other franchises for uh, other organizations. Yeah, you know, you talk about those three trades, and one of the things that really stood out to me is those are trades that were rather recent. I mean, they're within the past like, six years or so. Um, but the uh, the fact that the Cardinals don't have anyone from their those trades on their major league roster at the moment. And the all-star starting lineups had three um, that did stand out, you know, and it adds to a little bit of the, the pinch and, or if you want to put lemon in the paper cut kind of thing, the uh, you know, to Sandy Alcantara winning the Cy Young award last year and Zach Gallen, who was involved in that same trade being a contender for the Cy Young this year. So yeah, there's a lot of what could have been there. I mean, the, the Cardinals are asking that same question internally too. What could have been, you know, had they pushed harder for, Luis Robert Jr. is an Arena, Luis Robert Jr., Adolis Garcia. Is that their outfield? Um, you know, what did they 
miss? What opportunity did they not give? Um, what development and instruction did those players get elsewhere that helped unlock them? I think, you know, it was a story that I tried to dive into there in Seattle by talking to the three players you mentioned about what they found after the trade. Um, you know, Randy Rosarena is an example. He was with the Cardinals. The Cardinals were hungry for offense. He had hit at every level. Um, and Lane Thomas, who is hitting 300 for Washington, so there's another one. Um, Lane Thomas was also hitting well and playing better defense than Randy Rosarena. That's how the Cardinals saw it. Cardinals were going to shift playing time to Lane Thomas. And they then, they, he was getting playing time early on, maybe game or two in. He gets injured. The Cardinals have to address the dilemma again. Do they look to the offense that Randy might provide or do they double down on the defense? They thought that their calling card was run prevention and that they would find a way through that. So they made Harrison Bader their center fielder and gave him the playing time. Now he took off, um, won a gold glove, played great, um, and now he's with the Yankees. So there were three guys for them to choose from. One got injured. One had the exceptional elite defense, and the other one had the offensive potential. And I think it's interesting to look at what opportunity those guys got and how, in some cases, they had to go elsewhere to get it. Same with Garcia. Roster squeeze. They wanted a spot on the 40-man. They wanted to move the spot down a little bit, a few more years. And Texas was there, rebuilding, hungry for right-handed power, willing to take a chance, willing to take to bet on the upside, and also maybe help him you know, kind of bring in that strike zone discipline and get Garcia to take off to maximize that power potential. What do the Cardinals not do there? These are questions that they're asking internally. And yeah, fans are asking too, because they see the team that could have been, and then they look at the standings and they see the team that is. Let's spend a couple minutes on Wilson Contreras. So in between times that we've spoken, we had a mm -hmm. conversation with Ryan Helsley and brought up the Michael K rumor about Contreras you know, pressing a button on the video game that doesn't do anything. You know, like sometimes <laughs> you like play that? a video game and you're like, I'm pressing. You're like, yeah, R2 doesn't do anything on this game. I don't, okay? I don't, I don't have He doesn't have square. that pitch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Square. Um, so did you hear anything about that? Your thoughts and reactions even to what, what K said, then Helsley essentially confirmed it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Helsley. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but Helsley said that a guy came out of the bullpen and asked for a pitch that he didn't have, right? That was yes. the, yeah, okay. Yep. Yeah. And I believe he said cutter. Did he say cutter? Yeah, yeah, it was a cutter, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was a cutter. So, so that that is something that I, I, I don't know if it's the same story. I want to be very clear on that, that I don't know the same that Helsley told you the same story that I know. Um, but what we, were, we were told at one point in time that it happened like once like that, was a cutter. It was a pitch where does he have that? Does he not? Or was it the other guy? And then it was not an issue again. Um, what Kay and and I wasn't listening to the game at the time. So again, I you know I just asked about it afterwards. We uh, you know Marmol did not want to go into it. Uh, Wilson Contreras declined comment. There was um, you know there were there were times where Wilson was asking them to throw not types of pitches but locations of pitches that pitchers were not comfortable with. This was came up earlier in the season. And I talked to Wilson about this and he was talking about how he's trying to, the phrase that he used is like, we have to make hitters uncomfortable. And I want, I want us to pitch meaner. We need to pitch inside more. And he wasn't getting the pitchers to kind of do that. So 
it wasn't a type of pitch he was calling. It was more a location of pitch. And, all, and some of this has all been conflated into the same kind of story, if that makes sense. Um, there, there's, I, I don't know, Eric, you, you'd be one to answer this. I've heard different stories throughout the years of catchers doing that and then adjusting real quickly. Um, I also was told a story once by a rookie who I wish I could uh, remember the exact pitch, but he said he went out on their mound, Yadier Molina put down a finger for a pitch that he didn't have. And he thought, oh, no, it's Yadier Molina. I better make up this pitch. Is that what I'm supposed to do? And, you know, and, and, then, and then we laughed, right? That's a, that's a good – it's a good story. It's funny. Um, but you can see how with the current kind of climate and current scrutiny about Contreras, a funny story like that with Yadier Molina's reputation would turn into something a little bit different this year. That doesn't make them different at all. Exactly. That is not – and so it's like – are you are they piling on Wilson because well this is an easy scapegoat because if I point all the fingers at him wait a minute there's three more pointing back at me yeah. and it's kind of like what we talked about the first time you were on I don't Wilson Contreras was who he was he was if the Cardinals didn't know I know for a fact because somebody from the Cardinals that doesn't coach with the Cardinals anymore knew that Wilson Contreras was getting pitches called in from the dugout when mm -hmm. he was catching for the Cubs. So the Cardinals knew this. They knew this coming in. Mo wasn't sitting there going, hmm, what do you guys think of this guy? Do you have anything? And they were like, oh, get him, get him. This was, this was an issue. But I think mm -hmm. it's more of a blown up issue because of what the people around Wilson around on the staff essentially not just one person on the staff but the whole staff in general mm -hmm. the organization was leaning on the Yadier Molina and yeah there's a lot there, of that it's like there, there's a lot of that but what do you see in the organization do you see anything like do you see more analytic people scurrying about than you saw before or do you see anything no. physically nothing right no, no. Um, I mean, look, you do see changes in how Wilson is caught. I mean, and you see sometimes where he goes back to where he's comfortable, whether that's one knee down or, you know, where they, they talked about his position on the plate. I mean, they, they moved him closer to the plate in hopes to help to get that lower strike. They did a lot of things in, in spring to work with him, um, like behind the plate with positioning, even how he caught um, some pitches to help him with framing, right? Like glove up as opposed to thumb down. Um, things like that with certain pitch calls and and certain pitches that their pitches throw or, or their pitchers throw, excuse me. Um, and then, you know, early on in the season, one of the things that was standing out was they just were struggling to strike pitches. They gave up just a bunch of home runs, a league high home runs. They still haven't really improved on that, um, but it's not as much of an outlier as it was early on. And you talk to the pitchers, and one of the things that Jack Flaherty said was he said, we're, 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 we're having pitches that don't make sense. And some of that was the call, and some of that was the conversation that they later had with Wilson and with Adam Wainwright and all those. But some of that was the execution. And I do think in these conversations, whether it's what you know players have said or what broadcasters have said, um, and I try to be aware of this too when I'm writing and when I'm asking questions, is we also need to look at the execution of it. Like try to not just see the result or – look for the reason of, oh, well, that pitch didn't, that pitch must have failed because it was the wrong pitch call. Let's look at the execution of it. Look where the setup was. Look what was called. Ask deeper questions. Don't try to go like, all right, well, 
you know, clearly it was the wrong pitch at the wrong time. Um, ask beyond that. And I think what we're seeing is just a lack of execution. Um, the Cardinals know it. There's a lack of efficiency, too, with the starting pitching. It's really been what has cratered this season, to be honest. Um, you know, when you look at the offense, it's a top 10 offense by very many measures. Um, when you look at the pitching, it's a bottom five pitching staff. It's a bottom five in a lot of different ways that you want to go. Um, strikeout rate being most, uh, most what stands out the most. Um, you know, the starting rotation is among the lowest right there at the bottom with other teams with losing records. So that's where it fits. The offense right now is an offense of a team that can tend the pitching staff and it's searching for any sort of reasons and in some ways lashing out at the nearest target. So basically the rest of your season is going to get super exciting. You are going to get yeah. a lot of questions and trade rumors and everything. Yeah. But the real question today is mm -hmm. what is your favorite baseball book of all time? <laughs> <laughs> My favorite baseball book of all. Well, clearly it's the one right here. The, by Tim Brown and Eric. No, um, are you? Are you? Do you really want to know? Like my favorite baseball book? Because I had to no. I did a list. Oh, okay. Oh, you do? No, no, you can't. I don't want to kill it. <laughs> no, I do. I mean, as long as as long as you you say tab the backup catcher. No, and then okay. So what's your second favorite? Right, there after, it is. That's after the, Tim's favorite, incredible, what is your what is your second favorite? But yes, I'm into it. Yeah. Second. Uh, no, I just had to do this because Joe Kelly wrote a book recently. You know that, that was really good and really really blunt and honest. And I really appreciated that. So I put together like a list of books to read when there aren't any baseball. And so, you know, you put on there like Lords of the Realm by John Hellar, who is a great, you know, one of the seminal books about the business of baseball. Um, you know, the Iowa Baseball Confederacy. I know, you're, you know, if you want to read a novel about baseball, about an unending game that takes on a lot more uh, gravity than just baseball. Those are some of my favorites. Um, I'd be remiss not to mention The Last Night of the Yankee Dynasty too by Buster Only. I mean, I read that um, and just was like, and, and, and was really taken by what a beat writer can do and how that kind of framed my view of what it means to be a beat writer. There you go. Sweet. And we have a lot of people in the chat writing down, uh, writing down lists right now. We'll throw this out oh, there. Good. Hey, there you go. Derek, thank you so much. Great catching up with you as always. There it is. Boom. Yep. I'll have to get guys. a sign by, uh, by you and Tim Brown. That's my yes. next goal. We'll get it done for sure. Derek. Done, done. Derek, thanks, man. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you. And you can follow Derek and all, all of his writing um, on the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Give him a follow at D Goulds, G-O-O-L-D.